he was sitting around telling these people, no, 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 no. And then he got up and walked away from the table. And, you know, I'm, I'm a brand new missionary. I mean, I hadn't been in country a month. And I'm like, why is that missionary telling all these guys? No, you know. So I go over there and I, I sit down and I'm like, so what's going on? I said, oh, that's our friend Joe. He's awesome. And I says, so what's going on? And he says, well, we, uh, we're working here in Nairobi. And he says, uh, when, the, uh, when somebody comes to Jesus, as if it's a woman... I'm in a ref- they're working in a refugee area. If it's a woman and, they, and the husband can't get her to come back to, uh, to Islam, that, uh, you know, he'll beat her, give her a rough time. And then a lot of times as a last result, he, result, he will uh, resort. That's the word I'm looking for. Uh, he'll take, uh, you know, we have large families over there, like we do here. And uh, so he'll take the four or five oldest children and um, uh, he'll keep them, and then he'll stick the baby in her arms, and maybe a toddler, you know, she doesn't want any kids to go, he doesn't want any kids to go with her that can help her. And he abandoned her under a bridge or in the slums, and the hope is that she'll become so desperate that she'll come back to Islam because she's all by herself. And these guys are explaining this to me, and then there was other two guys that were former imams that had also came to Jesus, and I found out that uh, this one of these imams would go gather these people up from under the bridges and, and, and Muslims that had come to Jesus in the slums, and uh, he was bringing them, and this other missionary named Joe uh, would pay for them for four months to live in a house and have some food and, you know, give them a safe place to be for a little while. And then, but the understanding was, is that, you know, you can't do this forever for everybody. So he had put a limit on that of four months. And so at the end of four months, they got to kind of figured something out so they could, you know, go on with their lives. And so anyway, he was sitting there with uh, an imam that uh, Al-Shabaab was looking for. And, um, and he was saying, your four months are up. He was sitting there uh, with another imam that had some of these ladies that had been thrown out of the house and been living under a bridge, and their four months were up. And, and I was there, and, uh, and, uh, and this guy said, Glenn, I can't do everybody all the time. I just can't. He said, I can do four or five of these at a time, and that's all I can do. And it has to, if I don't stop helping them, I can't help the next one that gets thrown under a bridge. I can't help the next person being persecuted. So what's that got to do with getting a beard, Glenn? I sat at that table, and uh, speaking of Facebook, and I said, um, I believe that if people back in America knew this was happening, that they wouldn't let it go. And I said, uh, so I, I... I started using my Facebook, and I would write a story about one of these people. And, uh, but anyway, I basically told them that we would, uh, nobody was going back under the bridge, and nobody was, Al-Shabaab wasn't going to get them, we'd find a way. And so uh, I found myself, instead of being in Tanzania working with the tribal people I came for, I was thrust in the middle of this incredibly... Um, Violent and volatile environment where at that time Al-Shabaab had just blown up the Westgate Mall in Nairobi. They had, uh, were, 
just before they were getting ready to kill 237 college students a couple hours north of us there in Nairobi. And I began working with refugees that were coming to Jesus from Islam and began to lead people to Christ in this refugee area called Eastley. And as I was working there, I, I had my head shaved like Tim does here, but my, uh, but my chin was, was the same way, you know, just bald as a baby. You know, in the, in the West, you know, guys want to look younger and I was, my dad was kind of a man's man. There was no way I was putting any coloring on my hair. So as I was slowly going gray back then, the only alternative one of my friends suggested was, well, Glenn, if you just shave everything off, you won't look so old. So I started shaving everything. Well, I had no idea what the impact was going to be when I got to uh, Africa. So I'm working in this area. Al-Shabaab's here. I mean, it's hard to explain to people that haven't been there, but in a 10 or 12 square block, on that side of the street is the slums, and it's one mile by one mile, and there's 575,000 people live there, and there's no two-story buildings. On this side, there's only a half a million people, and it's bigger, and the Somali pirate guys have bought all the buildings up, and so it's mainly Somalis, Ethiopians that have run up, been run out of Ethiopia because the communist government is persecuting the Oromo tribe. We got Sudanese because there's a war going on in Sudan back then. We had the Etrians because they were involved in the civil war. And, of course, we had the Somalis that were fleeing the warlords up in Somalia, and they were all living there together. And it wasn't uncommon, uh, particularly when I first got there, you'd be walking down the street, and you'd just hear the sound of machine guns in the distance. And what you do is you really don't freak out like we think, oh, no, is you just go, I'm not walking down there. <laughs> and you just go the other way. I don't know where you thought you were going, but you never walk towards machine guns, you know, and so you just go the other way. And so that's kind of what I did. Well, one day I'm out doing my thing, and I'm walking along, and then I don't know what happened. I can't really tell you what happened. I, 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 know, I know I was there when it happened, but I can't tell you what happened. All I know is I'm walking along, and then all of a sudden, bam! And I'm standing there, and I'm and I'm I'm kind of, of course, the whole, you, you know, I'm in this big crowd of people, and I have to kind of keep walking because everybody else is walking. I kind of turn around, and my head's swelling up, and I look around. I thought somebody with a board or something must have, you know, been walking by and just planted a two before on the side of my head or something. I look around, and I go, no. And I realize I'm lightheaded and I'm walking and I'm going, what just happened to me? And I, I'm walking and finally go, I think someone just cold cocked me. Just stone cold walked up to me and hit me as hard as they could. But I'll never be sure. Because, I mean, I was in a total stunned daze. And then wasn't but a, uh, a few days later, a bunch of Somali guys surrounded me and they're screaming and yelling at me and they were going to get me in. So anyway, I was on my way to a house church meeting, so I, could, I had to be like extra cool because, you know, if they know you're going to take a bunch of Muslims into a house church meeting, then that's a bad thing. So you have to really keep your cool. And then a few weeks later, I get surrounded by another bunch of Muslims and praise God, a Muslim guy kind of come and rescued me that time. And uh, but I was just being kind of singled out a lot. Uh, sometimes what they'd do is it's send a bunch of young guys, 14 or 15 years old, and they're a lot smaller than we are. And they'll come up and, you know, give you a hard time. And what they're trying to do is get you to push one of them away, because what you don't realize is about 30 guys around them that are full grown men. And they're waiting for you to push one of those teenagers. They're waiting for you to 
shove somebody, yell at somebody, or get sick of it and push somebody out of the way. And then when that happens, you're going to get a rude awakening there real quick. You're going to find all the kids disappear and all the men show up, and, and it's the end of it. And so anyway, I'm in this environment. And so finally, without any planning or forethought whatsoever, I go home to Tanzania to visit in uh, the uh, razor blades I was buying, Mach 3. We all know the Mach 3 blade. All us men know that's a good cheap one. And I got back to Tanzania, and uh, this blade all of a sudden was $18. You know, I guess it was a shortage of blades. So I, I came back, and uh, I said, I'm not wasting $18 of God's money razor blades. So I quit shaving. It was like magic. You know, I had a little stubble thing going on. And next thing you know, I would go to Eastley and instead of punching me or surrounding me and cursing me and everything, all of a sudden people go, what's up? I let it get about this long, about three or four weeks later. And all of a sudden they begin to say, which means, you know, hello, my elder. And then a little later, I became Baba, which, you know, father, you know, ah, Baba. So I'd go by. And then next thing I know, they opening the door for me and called me Babu, which my sister know means grandfather. And I thought, this is pretty cool. So one day I'm, I'm sitting there and I, and I had an opportunity to talk to a Muslim man. In fact, I was eating in his home um, and his mom had died and I was very involved with this guy and he was a Christian and... Um, it's a long story, but anyway, this guy was a Muslim, and he had married the guy's wife. It was kind of a unique situation, but I was still friends with the children. I had, in fact, I had promised to provide for their education when he died. He died of tuberculosis at 22 years old, and he was one of my, my best friends over there. So I was still staying in touch with the girls, and um, I told this guy, I said, you know, what's the big deal? I said, when I first came here, Everybody was really rough to me and everything, and then all of a sudden, everybody's been super nice to me. It's like, it's like night and day. And he says, because you finally quit shaving. And I said, what? And he said, shaving. You shaved your face. I said, well, yeah. I said, what's the big deal about shaving your face? And he said, oh, let me explain to you. He says, have you ever noticed how women don't have beards? Yeah. I noticed that. He says, you see, men have facial hair and women don't. And I said, yeah. And he says, so why do you want to be a woman? I said, excuse me? He said, why do you want to be a woman? I said, I don't want to be a woman. He said, why are you shaving your face? You just want to look like a woman? I said, no. And I says, are you telling me because I shaved your interpretation of that is, is I want to be a woman. He said, obviously. And I says, oh, well, I can relate a little better now. And he said, what do you mean? I says, well, you know, we're a little uncomfortable when guys show, show up dressed like girls in my culture. You know, we kind of freak out. And finally, I realized I was talking to a guy about it. And I said, you know, if a, you know we can be as open-minded as we want. But when a guy walks in with fishnet hose and a miniskirt, it's a little unsettling. And that's kind of was. All I was doing was shaving. So I decided not only to let my beard go out, but I hardly ever trim it anymore. So it has been like, I tell people it's my Superman cape when I get around radical Islam because everybody just assumes everything's okay. So that is why I have a beard.
How about that? It's a true story. That's how I grew when I never really wanted one, to be honest with you, but I don't think I'll ever shave it now. Besides, I can't get anything going on up here anymore. It's all gone. When people send me a picture with my mother, though, they all tell me I have a beautiful wife. I say, it's a little disconcerting when you're this gray. And my mother's 80-something years old. I went to the gym the other day, and I'm working out, and I had a it's a true story. A guy walks up to me, and he goes, man, you're such an inspiration to me. And I said, oh, well, okay, thank you. And he says, man, you're just, it's unbelievable the kind of shape you're in. And I says, well, thank you. And he said, how old are you anyway? And I said, 65. And he goes, never mind. <laughs> That's a true story, too. <laughs> the YMCA is a tough crowd over there. But anyway, well, I'm so glad to be here today. I, um, you know, I'm going to be speaking tonight and in the morning and then, of course, tomorrow night, correct? Uh, I want to tell you guys, I normally do things a certain way, and it kind of goes like this. I would normally, on the first meeting, uh, I would show you some slides and really kind of show you what, what a day in the life of Glenn's like and what it's like to be a missionary and, and, and give my testimony to you and, 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 and things like that. And then the next time I would speak, I would actually talk about making disciples and how we do that. And then the last thing that I would talk about was how to articulate the gospel of the kingdom of God. Most of us, uh, particularly those of us that come from a background that is more like Mennonite or Amish and all, which is not my background, uh, uh, though, I just speak at almost exclusively uh, Mennonite churches. I'll explain that to you in a minute. But uh, uh, one of the things that, that we're great at is we, you know, we're great at teaching on the commands of Jesus. We're great at relating the Sermon on the Mount. We have no idea how to lead lost people to Jesus and, and, and transition them from this uh, uh, getting them saved to being a kingdom-type Christian. I tell people all the time, most of us that have come from, most of you guys and now me as a kingdom Christian, come from a background to where we're good at one thing and we're really bad at another. So what we've done is we've gone and co-opted the uh, Southern Baptists, I like to use them because I, I know a lot of Southern Baptists, a lot of them are my best friends. All my Southern Baptist friends, and we got, they got this thing called evangelism explosion. How many of you ever had an evangelism explosion class? Oh, everybody almost raised their hand. Okay, there you go. You know, if, you, if you're a good evangelism explosion person, at some point you've been taught to say, when you're talking to somebody, that if you were to die right now and you find yourself standing before God and he said, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? And there's only like two or three code answers that you're supposed to give or, you know, you're, you're wrong. And uh, so anyway, excuse me. Anyway, uh, so I, I like to put that under the category of things Jesus never said. You know, uh, because it, we, we got these great things, and I was taught to do an evangelism explosion. I also like the, there was another great method called Share Jesus Without Fear. That's, this Bible is a Share Jesus Without Fear Bible. I've, I keep them all the time. It's great. Uh, I like it for its size, obviously. But what we're bad at is, those of us that believe there's more to becoming a Christian than saying a prayer and being sorry you're a sinner, and then kind of showing up in church the rest of your life or and uh, trying to read your Bible and pray a little bit, and that's kind of the sum game of being a Christian. Uh, the problem with most of us is we don't know how to do a gospel presentation or to call men and women to come and follow Jesus 
And, and, how, and how does this all work together with the kingdom of God? You know, they went around all the time in the New Testament, and it said they were persuading men about the kingdom of God and Jesus. Paul says it over and over again when he describes his own ministry. You know, the one thing people forget is, I'm going to show you, to, uh, I'm going to show you Sunday night, that the kingdom of God, I'm going to show you where it actually began. I'm going to show you where it ends, but I'm going to show you some things that you may not have noticed before. One of them is the book of, you know, we all know about the kingdom of God and Jesus talking about it in Matthew especially, you know, in the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. What most people don't believe in, the book of Acts starts with the kingdom of God and ends with the kingdom of God. Jesus shows up and he's preaching and it says after he rose from the dead, he taught the disciples for 40 more days after he rose from the dead and he taught them about what? kingdom of God. The first evangelist gets sent out. The evangelist Philip goes out and he preaches and he goes out doing signs and wonders. He preached to them about the kingdom of God. Paul tells him, it tells us uh, that he, when he was in Ephesus, he went into the synagogue and for three months he persuaded them there about the kingdom of God. It goes on and on and on. And finally, the last two things are written about Paul in the book of Acts is, is that Paul was in, in a, uh, uh, was staying in an apartment and people were coming to him every day and he was persuading them about the kingdom of God and Jesus. So the book of Acts starts out, it's about the kingdom of God and it ends and they're still talking about the kingdom of God. I know all the letters in the Bible talk about a lot of different topics. Those are written to Christians. When they talk about leading people to Jesus, the kingdom of God and Jesus went together, and we've divorced the two. And what happens is it changes your fruit, and it changes the people that you're bringing to the Lord. I used to teach some of my Mennonite friends, you guys are practicing bait and switch. And he goes, what? And I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. You just come and say this prayer and get saved and everything will be okay and you'll be a Christian. And then as soon as they become a Christian, we start trying to, to, through what we call discipleship, we try and turn them into a, to a more committed Christian and everything. I had a guy literally tell me one time when I had led him to the Lord, he's a college uh, roommate of mine, I had led him to the Lord and led him to Jesus and I had just been on him for months to come and become a Christian and to, and, and so I'd gone out of town, and I'd come back, and he said, I just want to let you know, I, I went to this big uh, church, and I went down front, and I did just what you told me to do. I repented. I repented of my sins. I prayed and asked Jesus in my heart, and, uh, and now I'm a Christian. Well, man, I was got all excited. His name's Greg Hatton. I was all excited for him, and I just love Greg to death, and uh, uh, I want him to come and go to the prayer meeting. I want him to come to go to Wednesday night Bible study. I want him to come over to my room, and I, I gave him a Bible. My room was just right across the hall at college, you know, and, and I wanted to study the Bible. And, and after about pestering him two weeks, he went, look, Glenn, I want to get something straight with you. He said, I'm not going to do any of that stuff. And I said, excuse me? He said, look, you told me I needed to ask Jesus in my heart. I needed to be sorry I was a sinner. I went down to the church. I did everything you told me to do. I didn't sign up for this other stuff. He said, you told me that's what I was supposed to do, and I did it. And I'm done with it now. And I'm like, did I really tell him that? But I realized I was the, I was the originator of the Christianity bait and switch scheme. You know, you get them on this 
pray this prayer, believe this thing, and now you're a Christian, and now somehow he's going to want to come and do something else. And, you know, I noticed that as I began to study the Bible and as I began to talk about making disciples, I noticed that Jesus never begged anybody to come get saved so they could go to heaven. He said, you must hate your mother, father, and sister, and brother, yes, your own life. Take up your cross and come and follow me. In other words, Jesus says, you got to give up everything and come and follow me. So what I started doing was I changed my whole gospel presentation. (laughs) I started calling men to discipleship and stopped trying to get them a ticket to heaven. You see, we're trying so many times in the evangelical world is that we're trying to lead people uh, to Jesus so they can go to heaven. And that never was God's plan. God's plan is that they would come. Jesus's plan was that they would come and follow him. Jesus's plan was to make disciples. And one of the things I want to talk about is, is, uh, is what that really means. You know, one of the problems we have right now is, is that we th- we, we, we've got in our mind, we all know we're supposed to make disciples. But the problem is, is what we've basically done is, is we've changed the door, the little plaque that goes on the door. It used to say, men's meeting or men's Bible study or men's fellowship home. We took that down and now it says men's discipleship class. And we do exactly the same thing we were doing before, but we're more sincere. And we use the word disciple more. We can't just, we got to start discipling people. And then we teach the same thing we always taught. We have the same Bible studies we always had. We do the same thing we always did. And, and we, the reason we got this problem is that's how we all started, and that's basically what we know. And that's because we're not following the way Jesus did things. So what I want to talk about here tonight a little bit is being and making the disciples. And the first thing that I want to tell you about on this is you cannot make disciples until you are a disciple. You don't just decide, oh, I go to church, I need to make disciples. That is not where it starts. I am so sorry. That is not where it starts. Most of us, if you're like me, you know what somebody need to come up and tell me? Uh, You can't make disciples. See, because you're not one. All you're going to do is reproduce what you are. Okay, and let me explain something to you. This is going to get into a little circular reason, but I want to get you get your mind around it. Disciples make disciples. If you were a disciple, I'm sorry, you'd already be making disciples. See, by the sheer virtue that you are not making disciples, you are not a disciple. Because a disciple, what did Jesus say in the Great Commission? Go into all the world and make disciples baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded them. Commanded you, excuse me. So if you're a disciple, see, you're already obeying all Jesus commanded you, which includes making disciples. So if you're not making disciples, I got bad news for you. You're not a disciple yet. And I'll tell you something else that's kind of bad news. If you're not a disciple, you're something God never called men to be and never sent the apostles out to make. If you are not a disciple, you're something Jesus never called men to be, and he never sent a single person out to make. So we've got to ask ourselves, 
What are we going to do about that? You say, well, Glenn, I'm a believer, and they called everybody a disciple in the Bible almost. They called them brothers and sisters. I'm a brother and a sister, and I'm a disciple and all. But a disciple is a follower. And I had a guy that taught Greek, and, you know, I took Hebrew. I didn't take Greek, so I don't know much about Greek. But I got a lot of friends that are pretty good at it. And I had a buddy of mine. He goes, all that word disciple means is teacher. He said, that's all it means, not special words. I mean, I'm sorry, student. Jesus is teacher, we're the student. That was what, what his point was. And so he's telling me, he said, uh, you know, all that means is a student. I said, well, actually, that's what your, like, strong concordance says. It really doesn't matter what your Greek book says. You see, a bunch of theologians and even a bunch of linguists don't get to decide what a disciple is. Jesus gets to define what his disciples are, because we're really not talking about students, are we? How many of you were a student in school? Let me tell you what I did in school when I was a student. I chewed gum when I wasn't supposed to. I stuck it up under the desk, sat around, thought bad things about little girls. That's what I did. Disobeyed my teacher, didn't do my homework. So Jesus called me to be a student? I hope not. That's my definition. That's what I was as a student. What did Jesus say? To give up everything. If you want to be my disciple, this is the standard. Now, listen to me. I want you to go home tonight and read, the, read in the Bible the call to discipleship. I want you to go and look it up in the Bible and see where Jesus says, if anyone wants to be my disciple, you got it in Matthew, you got it in Mark, you got it in Luke. I want you to go and look all three verses up because this is what I want to tell you. Jesus set the standard for being a disciple and he gave no one any permission to lower that standard. That is the standard and the definition. Okay? So what in the world does it mean to be a disciple? Well, first of all, to, in order to be a disciple, we have to have obviously done the things Jesus called men to do. Now, I'm hoping or thinking, and I'm, I'm almost positive that most of us here have repented of our sins, and we have decided that we want to follow Jesus. That's what we've done. Most of us that have come to church and, and are very sincere about that, we're very determined about that. However, for most of us, I know for me, I never actually had but just a few people kind of pass through my life for just a minute that I realized, oh, that guy's different. I think he's, he's a real, that's a disciple. You know, most of us, particularly where I grew up in the southern United States, uh, you know, we're basically a gun culture uh, down there in Memphis, Tennessee. All my friends, listen, we not only like guns down there, I don't have a friend that doesn't have a carry permit. I do not have a friend that doesn't have a carry permit and wearing a gun tonight, unless he's asleep already, unless he's a pastor, I'm pretty sure. I'm telling you the truth. This is where I live. These are the guys that I know and I grew up with. Uh, and, and that's okay for them. And uh, so anyway, that's the culture I grew up in. And, you know, basically what we did is God and country. I'm not sure which came first there. And we got a big old Jesus sticker stuck on the back of our SUV or our four-wheel drive pickup truck. And, uh, you know, and, and I got in big trouble when I came back from being over in Nairobi and I told everybody that Islam is not your enemy. They're the mission field. And everybody looked at me like I was nuts. Glenn, we got to go over here and 
we got to go over there and bomb all them Muslims, you know. We got to go over there and put a stop to this now. This is all out of control. And I said, actually, we need to go over there and tell them about Jesus. You see, lost people, I expect lost people to do things lost folks do. I mean, we were talking tonight. We said, you know, I fully expect sinners to sin. I expect them to lie and to cheat and steal. That's what I did till I came to Jesus. That's what you do. It's okay with me for them to be who they are, but we've got to be who God's called us to be. And so in my culture, when I came back from, uh, from being overseas and working as a missionary and I came back, I found myself in a situation to where I found myself really at odds with a lot of my own brothers and sisters in Christ. Because when I went to America, a lot of things, when I went to Africa, a lot of things happened in America and got everybody pretty fired up while I was gone. I kept coming back. I was a little surprised every time I came back. It seemed to be going this direction too. But when, when we had a lot of terrorist activity going on particularly, uh, I would come back and I had a lot of my very close friends very angry with me when I talked about loving our enemies. And I reminded them that Islam is, 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 is considered an enemy that we have over here. And there was a great meme. I don't know uh, if y'all saw the one. I have saved it, and I posted it at least once a year. And, man, do I get in trouble every time I post it. But I just love it. And it's Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. And he's, he's giving his sermon, you know, and all the apostles are, sta- are around him, you know, and everybody's listening with rapt attention. And he, he's talking. He said, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Turn the other cheek, you know, just the whole thing. And the guy says, well, what if they're Muslims? And he said, okay, let me start over. You stopped me when I lost you. Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. And, and I would go and talk. I actually had a pastor call me in, uh, um, uh, down in Mississippi, and he says, would you come, please, please come to my church and tell my people that Muslims need Jesus too. We don't need to blow them up. And I said, I'll be happy to. And so I come. I'm going to show you some pictures. One of the things you're going to see tomorrow is that 40% of all the leaders in my ministry uh, that we have over there in Africa came from Islam. 30% of our members came from Islam. And uh, I'm going to show you some, uh, some pictures of that, uh, so I want you to be here and to be a, do a part of it. But for tonight, what I wanted to say to you was, being a discipleship and being a disciple and making disciples, we have to be careful in this country. It, it can be a cool buzzword. It can be something where, how many of you know, it was about 10 years ago, all of a sudden everybody started saying, we need to stop making converts and start making the disciples. And it was really great, and, uh, but we did everything the same way we did before. How many of you get the ads that we get now on your smartphone where somebody's telling you, there's a new app for making disciples. Has anybody got any of those? Man, you know, I love that Francis Chan, is that his name? I love that guy. He's, I just, you know, I love to hear him talk. He loves Jesus. David Platt, you know, he's like the, uh, you know, the most radical guy there is in the Baptist church and everything. And, you know, I'm sure every denomination's got a super radical guy in their denomination. It's really calling the church to something new. I love all those guys, and all of them are sending me an app for making disciples. And I'm just like, there's not an app for making disciples. There's no such thing. Man, you got to do life with somebody to make disciples. So I want to talk about some practical things in doing that. 
the first thing is, is as I stated before, you can't make disciples until you yourself are. Guys, it cost everything to be a disciple, and it cost, I know this sounds crazy, it costs more to be a disciple maker. I'm going to tell you, I had to stop. I couldn't, listen, and I'm going to tell you this tomorrow, so I don't want to belabor it tonight. I published four magazines. I had a coffee shop restaurant. I had a telecom IT company and an executive placement service. You know, they were downsizing banks when I was here 12 years ago, and all these executives were out of work, and that's my specialty was these guys with their golden parachutes. I'd show them how to go out and get another job and everything. So anyway, I ran seven companies in all, and I know it's going to shock you to death, but I found out that I, I couldn't make disciples and chase money at the same time. It turns out this Jesus guy really knows what he's talking about. You know, he said, you, you, you can't serve mammon and God. And I, and I fought that for a long time because, you know, I wanted to be the guy with the Jesus bumper sticker on, but I, want, I didn't want it on my SUV. I wanted it on my Porsche, you know. And uh, so I wanted my Jesus bumper sticker, and I wanted to go out and do all the things that the world said that you could do. But I had come under conviction that, that I needed to... Uh, to learn how to make disciples instead of just converts. And what I'm going to share with you tomorrow is that I was part of an organization, and I learned through our, uh, uh, very much so through the, um, uh, the method of evangelism explosion type of sharing, I prayed with over 200 and something people to receive the Lord in 18 months. I was, a, I was the poster boy for uh, uh, leading people to the Lord. And... Um, I had come to the place to where I realized, uh, and I'll explain it to you tomorrow, that I was leading a lot of people to the Lord, but, but uh, they weren't growing at all. And so I started working to make disciples, but I couldn't do that until I myself made a commitment to be a disciple myself. It is impossible to make disciples unless you are one for so many reasons. For me, no matter how sincere I was, no matter how determined I was, I had structured my life in such a way that it was perfectly geared life to making money and a perfectly geared life to... Uh, be a good guy at church for three one to two hour periods all during the week, but I couldn't do the things God had actually called me to do. For me personally, and what I'm going to share with you tomorrow is, I had to blow my life up and start over again. I had to deconstruct everything I had done in pursuit of the American dream before I could seek a new dream, and that's a kingdom dream, a dream that I might be and make disciples for Jesus. I found out that being a disciple and making disciples is a full-time job. In fact, I tell people everywhere, one of the things I would like to do here is I'd like you to leave here maybe tomorrow, maybe the next day, and I'd like you to think about three things. One is, is I want you to say, if that guy can do it, anybody can. Because I want you to understand something. I am absolutely nothing special. I'm about the most average guy in the world. I mean, you can tell I'm not handsome. I'm kind of short. I went to school, and I had to study twice as hard as my friends to do good. And everything's kind of come, 
I've had to work at things a little harder than most people have in order to make anything work out in my life. So I don't have anything really going for me from a standpoint of natural ability and that kind of thing. And, uh, and that's just who I am. I'm the, probably the most average guy that you're ever going to meet in your life. And it's okay. And I believe God likes that about me. Because I don't think God wants me to be special because most of us aren't. And he still called us to do something special. He's called us to do great things. He's called people just like me and you, just regular people. People, their hair's thinning and they're too short and their feet are flat and they're not perfect. And they're not the smartest guy. Anybody ever heard, say, ever heard the comment, he's not the sharpest tool in the shed. She's not the brightest bulb in the closet. Well, you know, I've heard those things about myself from sometimes. But you know what? God doesn't care. God can use any one of us, and God can do great things. As a matter of fact, I know this sounds crazy, but God has factored in all of your flaws, and he's still got a plan for you to succeed and to be and make disciples. So the first thing I want you to know is, is that anything I can do, you can do better, okay? The second thing that I would want you to know from having gone from here is, I want you to think of yourself different. One thing I want you to understand is, is that in this culture particularly, I'm going to pick on the men just a little bit here for a minute, but in this culture, particularly in America, if you say, well, tell me about yourself, and, you know, the first thing they'd say is, you know, I'm an engineer, I'm a doctor, I'm a lawyer, I'm a, uh, I'm a welder, I have a roofing company, uh, you know, and a man will, almost immediately, he's going to identify himself by his job or career. That's just who we are. That's what we're all about. And so I was in a church one time, and uh, uh, it was a pretty eclectic crowd. And I asked everybody, I said, what do you do? And I pointed at somebody, and he goes, oh, I'm, a, I'm in college. I, I want to be a school teacher. I said, what do you do? So I'm a dentist. What do you do? Oh, I work for Federal Express. You know, we're in Memphis. Everybody works for Federal Express. And, you know, and so you'd go down the line, and everybody raised their head, you know, I'm a farmer. I do this, and I do that. And I sit there, and I said, now, before I go home this weekend, I, got, I want you guys to think different. And I said, instead of saying, I'm a doctor, is it now all of a sudden you realize, no, I'm a disciple. I'm a disciple maker. And I drive for FedEx, farm, or I'm a doctor or a teacher to fund my ministry. I'm not a welder. I know I weld. I mean, I know you see me welding. I know I look like a magazine publisher, but that's not what I'm all about. I'm a disciple of Jesus, and my full-time occupation is making disciples. 